We'll be finishing up uh, John chapter 6 this morning, and, and as we've gone through, someone's laughing at that, I don't know if that's about this or not, but, <laughs> but as we've gone through John chapter 6, we've seen many great things in this chapter of God's Word, and what began as a miraculous feeding of thousands has now come and sort of spiraled into this massive event, right? At the beginning of John 6, John records this miracle, this what he calls a sign of our Lord, where in the gospel accounts we see Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and feeds thousands, 5,000 men, upwards of maybe 10 to 15,000 people in total. And so our Lord has performed this great sign, he's multiplied this bread, and we talked about these echoes of the Old Testament that are happening, right? God raining down manna from heaven in the book of Exodus and recorded in the book of Numbers as well. And so in John 6, we've seen that the crowds that are following Jesus because of those signs that he's doing, they like this. They like the fact that he's performing these miraculous things in front of them. They even call him the prophet that was promised in the Old Testament. They try to make him king, and yet we see our Lord withdraw from them. And as the account goes, and as we've seen, Jesus is not what they expect him to be. Jesus is not what they've expected. That the crowds start demanding more from Jesus. What other signs are you going to do? What works do we need to do? And we've seen our Lord point them again and again, not to their works, but to his work. And mainly, he's not pointed them to themselves, but their need for him. That he is the one that is going to satisfy their souls, that's going to bring eternal life. He's going to be the true bread from heaven. And in these last couple of weeks, we've seen that just like the wilderness generation recorded in Exodus, these people also turn to grumbling and complaining. Instead of being thankful for these words of eternal life that our Lord has spoken, they turn to grumbling and complaining. And yet we've seen through all this, our Lord is not deterred by this. He's not, he's not upset about this. He's, he points them to their need to continue to feed on him. And far from watering down what he says, he in fact doubles down on what he says and points them to their need to trust in Him and that He's their only hope. And so we'll see today in these couple verses as we conclude John chapter 6 that even some of the people that have been following our Lord, some of the disciples of our Lord, some people that would call Him followers are going to turn away from our Lord. And that even one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples handpicked by our Lord will betray Him will turn against him, will turn him over to the leaders of the day to be crucified and killed. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this turning back, in the midst of this betrayal, we'll see today in our passage that even in the midst of rejection and unbelief and betrayal, we see the sovereignty of our God working in the nature of true saving faith. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. We'll begin in verse 66. This is the Word of the Lord. 
And after this, meaning the discussion beforehand, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter answered him, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come not resting in our own strength, in our own power, in our own ability, Lord. We come this morning relying on you. Knowing that you have given us your holy, infallible word. You've given us your spirit this morning. And so we pray that you would work by your word and spirit to speak to us. Not with the words of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And that as Paul says, that this morning as we come and we try to understand these things and we seek to look at the nature of true saving faith and contrasted with false temporary faith, Lord, we come this morning and we pray that our faith and trust would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God to work and to will that which is pleasing to your sight. And this morning, our hope and trust would be in you, not in ourselves, not in our own ability, not in our strength or will or merit, but in the sovereign power of our Lord. We pray this morning that you would do these things, that you would work among us, that you would be here present with us, that we might be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So our outline this morning is fairly simple, fairly straightforward. You can follow along on your handout if you'd like. We'll look first at the temporary faith of the, some of the disciples of our Lord, some of the ones that turned back that no longer followed him. And then we'll look at the nature of true saving faith as kind of exhibited and confessed by Simon Peter. And then we'll conclude by looking at the false, deceptive faith of Judas Iscariot, the one that betrays our Lord. So you can follow along there if you'd like. So as we've gone through John chapter 6, right, it's been a haul. It's been maybe even 10 plus sermons that we've looked at all that's happened in John chapter 6. And there's been a lot to look at. We started with the miracle. We looked at the walking on the water and all these things. And it all comes to this kind of watershed, definitive turning moment in the gospel and really in John 6. That Jesus has performed this miraculous sign. He's multiplied the bread. He's declared himself to be the bread of life. He's talked about and emphasized the necessity of being united to him. That if someone doesn't eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life in him. And yet we see in this passage that some of his disciples, the ones that are following him, turn away. And we see here the temporary faith of some of these disciples. 
that there were people that were following our Lord that are no longer following our Lord. People that would call themselves disciples are no longer disciples, right? We began at the beginning, there was these great crowds, there was thousands of people that were following our Lord. And that's distinguished here from these disciples. These are people that were followers, disciples of our Lord. And yet we see them turn back, no longer walk with Him. And I think if, if we take a moment to think about this passage, maybe brings up a lot of questions in our mind. And if we followed along with John chapter 6, there's some very important questions that we have to ask. One of those is this. Jesus, earlier in the passage, says that all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I won't lose any. And yet we see, and it appears as if, Jesus is losing some of his disciples, right? People have been following him, and they're turning back. They're leaving. What is going on here? And we could even say more, that these people were more than likely baptized. They were followers of Christ. They were confessed believers of him. And yet these difficult teachings that our Lord says causes them to turn away. So did these people have eternal life and then lose it? And if they, people that had seen our Lord in the flesh, if they had salvation and then lost it, how can we know that you and I won't lose our salvation? How can we be sure of our faith? And maybe even more pointedly, how are we supposed to understand in our Christian life and experience, people that confess Christ for a time and then turn back and fall away as these disciples did. Many of us are probably thinking right now of maybe family, maybe friends that at one time followed our Lord, maybe called themselves disciples, maybe were even baptized, maybe showed great joy in the Lord, maybe even cried tears of repentance, but are no longer walking with Christ. How do we understand these things? How do we understand them in light of Scripture? Well, luckily, Scripture gives us a couple categories for this. And one of them is, I think, very clear in Matthew 13, in the parable of the sowers and the seed. And in Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about this idea that the gospel is to go out to all peoples, right? That all peoples are here. Some is going to fall on the path. Some is going to fall on the rocky soil. And some is going to fall on good soil. All these different soils are the condition of the heart, really. And so we see some falls on the path. And the birds come and pluck it up. And, and there's, no, there's no life there. Some falls on good soil and produces fruit and bears much and some, we find, falls on rocky soil. And I find this one to be interesting because this seed springs up for a moment. It springs up for a moment. And Jesus even says with joy that this seed looks promising. It has high hopes. But because of the lack of deep roots, the sun comes and scorches this seed, this thing, and it is withers up and dies. And Jesus says this is the trial and persecution that comes on account of the word. And that's what we see in John 6. These people had sprung up with joy. They saw the miraculous things that Jesus was doing, and yet they are turning away. They're leaving. And last week we saw that they said that these teachings of our Lord were difficult. They were too hard. They wanted them to be easier. And so we see here in John 6 a picture of temporary faith. 
that, as I said, Jesus was not the promised Messiah that they wanted. They were ready to make him king. They were ready to put him on a throne. They were ready to see him overthrow the Roman Empire, and Jesus withdraws himself. This is not the kingdom that he comes to, came to set up. This is not the Messiah, their vision of the Messiah. He has come to do the Father's will, his will. They were more focused on the external, miraculous signs of our Lord rather than the teaching, the truth, and the doctrine that he came to proclaim. Their faith was not in the power of God and Christ to satisfy souls, but to satisfy their stomachs. They wanted another meal, and so they sprang up for the moment, but fell away. And so Jesus asked his disciples, he now turns to his disciples. He's seen maybe thousands of disciples leaving. All that are left are the twelve. And he turns to the twelve and he says this very pointed question. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Most people would say, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you want to have the biggest following that you can? Don't you want to get as many people around you as possible? You're asking these people if they want to leave. What are you doing? Jesus here is probing the motives of his disciples. He's testing their faith. Jesus, as we've seen throughout this whole discourse, he's not looking for the biggest amount of followers. He's not looking for the largest crowd of people that can follow him. He's not looking for the fickle, temporary faith of these so-called disciples. He is after true, saving faith. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And so we should feel this tension. All the people that had followed our Lord just left, except for the twelve. What's going to happen? Are the twelve going to stay with him? Are they going to also go away? Are they going to follow the crowds? What is going to happen? That brings us to verses 68 and 69, where we see the true saving faith exemplified in Simon Peter. So the crowds had just left him. Thousands upon thousands had just turned back and left our Lord. And Jesus asked them, are you going to go away as well? And in verse 68, we have these wonderful words of Peter and we see, we see the clear contrast between temporary faith and saving faith. And he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. One theologian said this, in reference to these verses. He says, A blessed reply was this from Peter. The wondrous miracles had attracted the others, but the teaching of Christ had repelled them. It was the very opposite with the apostles. It was not the supernatural works, but the divine words of the Lord Jesus which held them. And so it is, this that distinguishes a true Christian from a formal, merely outward professor. And we see in Peter's words the contrast. He's not focused on the external, miraculous only. It says that he knows that Jesus has the words, the teaching, the truth of eternal life. 
And we see this beautiful confession of faith from Peter, and it's maybe best to break it up into these four parts. First, we see the exclusive claim of Peter. Next, we see the firm faith of Peter. We see his public profession and his declaration of divinity. First, his exclusive claim. He says there's no one else. Who else are we going to go to? He recognizes that there's no one else for our Lord. There's no one else for them to go to but our Lord. Are they going to go to the legalism of the Pharisees, this doctrine of demons that adds commandments of men to the commandments of our Lord? Peter says, no, that's only going to condemn. We're not going to go to them. Is he going to go back to the law of Moses? Is he going to return to the ways of the old covenant, to the law? No. (laughs) He knows that his only hope is in Christ, the one who's going to fulfill the law and remove the curse from them. Secondly, we see his firm faith. We see that he's not placed his faith in merely the external miracles of our Lord, but in the doctrine and teaching of Christ. His eyes ran from the miraculous, the sign of our Lord, to the thing that those things signified, namely Christ as the true bread from heaven. We see the firm faith of Peter. And then next we see his public profession, that his faith is not just in his own heart and kept to himself, but he confesses it, he professes it, he declares it. He says, you are the one that we have believed and have come to know. Not just in Jesus as a good moral teacher, not just in his eloquent words, but that he has the words of life, words that are worthy of complete faith and trust. And finally, we see his declaration of Christ's divinity, that he's the Holy One of God, not just a mere man. This was a messianic, divine title. And I believe it's even echoing some of the things we see in Isaiah 43, verse 15, where the the Lord, Yahweh, says, I am the Lord, the Holy One. And I think Peter here is echoing that. He's saying, you are the Holy One of God. And he's giving him praise and glory as this anointed servant of Yahweh. So beautiful words we have here from Peter, a beautiful confession of faith. And we're reminded here not just to look at Peter, but to see why John wrote his gospel. We go all the way to John chapter 20, and John tells us why he wrote it. He says, I wrote these things so that you might believe, that you might come to know, you people in Decatur, Illinois, might come to know why Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why John wrote it. And so we're echoing really the words of Peter where where he says, I believed and I've come to know. And so John is written for this reason so that you might believe and come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, and he's the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. And it would be nice to end right here, right? It would be great if we could just close off our Bibles and and go home. But that's not where the passage ends. And we see here the false, deceptive faith of Judas. That even though we've had this great confession of Peter, this great profession and declaration of who Jesus is and, and what he came to do, in the midst of this, we see that even among the twelve, the closest circle of our Lord, handpicked by Him, 
that all is not as it seems, that there is false, deceptive faith even amongst the twelve, and that Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, was later called the son of perdition, is going to betray our Lord for mere 30 pieces of silver. He's going to turn him over to the authorities to be crucified and killed. So why, why does John put this here? Why, why, does he, why does he add this? And why does Jesus choose to do this, right? Why can't he just end on a happy note? Why can't he just, you know, say, great confession, Peter, let's all go home? What do we see in this passage? We see here that this betrayal of our Lord was not a surprise to him. That he knows what's going to happen. And this is not only because of our Lord's omniscience, right? His all-knowing, that he knows all things. He had read the Old Testament. In Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, My close friend, the one who has taken bread from me, has lifted his heel against me. That Jesus knew that even his closest friend would betray him. And this false faith is not a surprise to our Lord. This betrayal of him is not a surprise to him. He knew this would happen. So it's not a surprise. Second, we see this betrayal of Judas was part of, I'm sorry, it was not a failure of our Lord. Judas betraying our Lord was not a failure in Jesus. He didn't fail to do something. He didn't fail to do anything. In fact, in John 17, Jesus will say, All that you have given me, I have kept, except for the son of perdition, this one who would betray me. And this is in no way a contradiction to what we've seen in the Gospel of John, especially in John chapter 6, that Jesus is going to keep all those that the Father has given him. This is saying, this is to fulfill the scriptures that one would betray me. Unless we think, unless, sorry, let me say that slower. Lest we think Judas here is somehow a victim. That he's somehow one who just got swept into this. We see in the Gospel of John that Judas was a swindler. That he was a lover of money. That Mary would break a jar of expensive oil at his feet and wash the hair of Jesus and Judas says, why don't we sell that and give it to the poor? And John, commenting later, says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was in charge of the money and was taking some for himself. He masqueraded as one who cared about the poor, and yet he used it to steal and deceive. And he was desirous, not of caring for those less fortunate, but of benefiting himself, riches, and gain. So we've seen that this betrayal was not a surprise. This betrayal was not a failure of our Lord. And maybe the most difficult to understand is that this betrayal was part of the very plan and purpose of God. This betrayal was part of the very plan and purpose of God. That it is actually this betrayal is the very means that God uses to accomplish it, the redemption that he set out. <laughs> he sent his son into the world to die. How is he going to die? By one betraying him. This is what we see in the Gospel of John, that he uses the very betrayal of our Lord as the plan and purpose of God to glorify himself 
and accomplish the redemption of his people. And we should be reminded here of an Old Testament passage. Our Old Testament siren should be going off a little bit. Because what do we see in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? He is also a beloved son who's betrayed by one of his 12 brothers, is sold into slavery, becomes a servant, and yet is exalted, raised up as one who gives bread to those in the time of famine. What has our Lord done in John chapter 6? He's been betrayed by one of the 12, yet is raised up as one who gives bread to his people. Jesus is a type of Joseph. He's the true and better Joseph. He's the one that was pointed to in the Old Testament. We see that this is not a surprise to our Lord that he would be betrayed. It happened to Joseph. Why would it not happen to our Lord who was perfect? And so we see this morning that our Lord is not unaware of these things. He's very much aware of what's happening to him. He sees through the temporary faith of these disciples that turn away. He sees the true saving faith of Peter. And he sees through the deceptive false faith of Judas. And so as we walk away this morning, as we step back and we start to compare and think about these things, what is the nature of true faith? What does it mean to have temporary faith? Most of us fall into one of two places this morning. Some of us might be puffed up with pride this morning. We might be tempted to be puffed up with pride. Maybe we look at this passage and as we read it, we say, man, Peter and I, man, we have a great confession of faith, right? I have it all together. We have our stuff in order. Man, I have the Nicene Creed memorized. I have the Athanasian Creed memorized or whatever you have memorized. I, I might even have a better confession of faith than Peter. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, those crowds, those disciples that followed him, man, they, they were not that good. And I'm definitely better than Judas. I'm definitely better than him. I would never betray the incarnate Son of God. I would never do something like that. And yet, as we read the rest of the Gospel, especially the Gospel of John, we see that Judas is not the only one that betrays our Lord. That Peter himself will deny our Lord three times. The same one who confessed our Lord with such boldness and clarity denies him three times before he's crucified. The one who said, I would never deny you, is the same one who does it three times. And we get this amazing, amazing picture in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 22, we see that right as Jesus is about to be turned over, he's in the house of the priests. Peter is right there with him. And these three people come up to him and say, do you know him? And he says, I don't. Another person says, I know, I saw you there. And he says, certainly, I did not know him. And then a third time, someone says, I saw you with him. You are one also who is from Galilee. And he says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. The same one that confessed our Lord says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it says these amazing words. 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of our Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. The same one that had confessed our Lord here has denied him three times. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the difference between Judas and Peter? What is the difference between true saving faith and temporary false faith? And if the difference is in me and you, if it's in our ability, if it's in our merit, if it's in our skills as people to understand things or ascend to these truths of God, then you and I are in big trouble. Because if it's somehow located in us, we're lost. But we see, as we zoom out and look at the entire gospel accounts, the difference between true saving faith and false temporary faith is not in us, in our abilities, but in the sovereign love and mercy of God and the perfect, never-ending intercession of Christ. The perfect, never-ending intercession of Christ. In the upper room discourse, Peter saying, I would die for you, Lord. I would never deny you. And Jesus says, you will. But what? But I have prayed for you. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's the difference. The difference is the intercession, the keeping, preserving power of our Lord. And so this should humble us this morning. This should cause us to worship our Savior. It's not anything in us. It's not anything that we've done. It's because of what Christ has done in praying and interceding for his people. And so if we're proud this morning, may this humble us. May it cause us to fall on our knees and say, it's not because of anything I've done. It's because of what he's done. And the second group of us might be those who are fearful this morning, that have a weak conscience, that are lack, those that lack assurance. We might think to ourselves, am I one of those that's going to turn back? Am I one of those that has temporary faith? Maybe I feel good this morning, but am I going to feel good tomorrow or the next day or the next day? What's going to keep me in the faith? And we see in Isaiah 43 that our Lord is tender with his people. That it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not quench. That he's careful with his people. That even the smallest faith he fans into flame. That it's not the size of our faith, as we said before, but the object of our faith. And as we see in John chapter 6, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's going to keep his people. He's going to preserve them. None are going to perish. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I'll never cast them out. They're not going to perish, as we read in John chapter 10. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. To the point that in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, I have accomplished your will, and I have not lost a single one that you've given me. And so this morning we can say our faith is going to be tested. It may even fail at points. But our Lord will keep us. That true faith is kept by Christ alone. 
It's not on us. It's not on our abilities. It's only on Him. He's the only way. As one theologian said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But thanks be to God that it's not, <laughs> it's not by anything that we've done, but it's by His sovereign keeping and preserving. That true saving faith is a gift of God and it's preserved and kept by the prayer and intercession of our Lord. So we can say this morning, not by works that we have done, but what He's done. So thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you and we praise you that if it were not for your your sovereign keeping power, we too would be like those that turn away. We would be worse than Judas Iscariot. We would as soon sell you over to to the authorities before we ourselves have to be persecuted. We think so much of ourselves, Lord, and we thank you this morning that our that our keeping that our faith this morning is not found in the power or wisdom of men, but it's in the power of God. And so we pray this morning that you would keep us. <laughs> That's the only thing. And we pray, Lord, that just as Peter denied our Lord so often, Lord, do we deny you. Do we deny you in our sin? We deny you in our times of unbelief. But we pray, Lord, that you would restore us this morning, that we would see the work of Christ on the cross for sinners like us, the Holy One of God put to death for our unrighteousness. This morning, would our faith be strengthened? Would it be kept by a vision of Christ crucified and that this morning our eyes would turn not to ourselves, not inwardly, but outwardly to what you have done by faith? Keep us this morning. Assure us this morning, Lord. Give us strength. We're weak. We know that you will do this because you've promised that you will. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.